0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. Online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, August 1st, 2008. I'm Alana Rankin. Nothing says summer in New York like the smells that come with a heat wave. For Avery Gilbert, those signature city scents are more than just a seasonal sign. They're science. Gilbert is a smell scientist and the author of a new book, What the Nose Knows. I caught up with him at a recent book event and learned about the smelliest molecules, questionable smoky drug busts, and yep, some gassy facts as well. This week, while you're listening, check out our smelly slideshow at scienceandthecity.org podcast. Love Science in the City podcast? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org.
1: Thanks everyone for coming. This is a great crowd for us over here. Welcome to Barnes & Noble in Greenwich Village. My name is Avery Gilbert. I'm a smell scientist, sensory entrepreneur, if you will. I have a PhD in psychology and found my way into the world of odor perception through all kinds of back routes, but here I am today. I decided to write a book about smell when there are so many in the store and in the library. Every few years, somebody writes a book about smell, so why would I do another one? I think there's two reasons. One is the science has advanced tremendously just in the last few years. We now have ways of visualizing odor response in the brain. We know more about the receptors in the nose and how they actually capture odor molecules. We have better ways of analyzing smells in the real world, capturing them and reproducing them. So I think all these things have been neglected. Nobody's really updated the science of smell. Plus, the science is just weird. I mean, it's, it's an odd business that I'm in, making smells. Nobody ever wants to become a smell expert. You just sort of fall into it. And I think the weird stories have a kind of fascination on their own. The other reason I did it was because all the other smell books tend to repeat themselves. So typically, there's the anecdote about Napoleon writing Josephine and telling her, "I'm coming home in three days, don't bathe. I was determined to write a smell book, this is my editor nodding at me here, that would not include that anecdote. And this book does not include that. Go elsewhere if you want the Napoleon story, okay? You've already heard it. Rat sex. Yeah, I was an animal behavior student, that's what I really loved, and that's what got me into psychology. And I went to graduate school to study animal behavior, and much of that revolves around smell. Scent marking, mate competition, detection of predators, and so on, and from there I went to study mice that differed in one gene and had different body odors, and the mice preferred to mate with the opposite-smelling strain. And I was doing this research, and I thought to myself one day, can we, as humans, smell the same differences that the mice can? So that was my first human experiment, if you will. I, we, I put mice in little sandwich boxes with air holes in them and had people smell the sandwich boxes, and sure enough, people could actually do the same odor discriminations that the mice could. So it was sort of a man-bites-dog man story. I want to introduce somebody that I found in the course of researching this book and to find new people. Not new, I mean, he's dead. (laughs) Thriving in the 1800s, his name was Henry Theophilus Fink, a great, great name, he was a philosopher and critic. He wrote a book called The Gastronomic Value of Odors, and there's one little quote from it, it's, "...blindfold a person and make him clasp his nose tightly, and then put into his mouth, successively, small pieces of beef, mutton, veal, pork, and it is safe to predict that he will not be able to tell one morsel from another." The same results will be obtained with chicken, turkey, and duck, and pieces of almond, walnut, and hazelnut. And so this is a simple demonstration, I think, of the contribution of smell to flavor. So what we typically regard as flavor in the mouth is actually two modalities coming together to give this illusion of, of flavor. It's taste, which are the four or five tongue senses, and olfaction, which is all the nose action. Cooking and use of fire in human culture goes back easily 270,000 years. Modern Man appeared 100,000 years ago. And there's evidence of fire use going back almost a million years. And so, if we're cooking, we're also spicing. We're making food that's more edible, easier to swallow, easier to chew, which in turn, you know, it takes a lot less time to eat a boiled monkey leg than to try to gnaw it raw off the bone. It takes a chimpanzee all day long. And there's a lot of stuff you're missing out on if you're spending a lot of time gnawing on that and trying to get your 2,000 daily calories by eating raw vegetables, like these German food cultists do. Turns out most of them are unhealthy. It's changed our social behavior, it's changed literally the shape of our face and our digestive tract. I suspect that our spicing of our food has also changed directly the evolution of the receptors in our nose, so that we are tuned to smell certain things probably that other animals can't smell. I suspect, and this is speculation on my part, that those would be involve spices in cooking. So especially the things that are associated with human food processing, like fermentation whether it's fermented milk products like yogurts, cheeses, fermented beverages like beer and wine and other kinds of alcohol. Certain roasted notes, when we roast meat, those roasted notes, the toasted notes of grains when they're baked, those never occurred in the real world until we started cooking them. Those are new smells, and I think our ability to smell them and, in fact, to really focus on them in detail may be made possible by a separate set of receptors that aren't shared with say chimpanzees or certainly not with mice and dogs for example. One of these kind of quiet revolutions that's happened I think without a lot of notice from the media is the revolution in chemical analysis of smells. We can now capture a smell just by sucking air through a globe, a glass globe, into a small filter and then put that filter into a machine that analyzes to the molecular level what's in the smell. And This enables us to take something as simple as a blossom or a piece of fruit a strawberry or an entire smellscape and analyze it and capture its notes and therefore reproduce it. So it it creates a lot of interesting possibilities for restoring past smellscapes, for kind of re-experiencing an entire world that isn't at hand. We sometimes get overwhelmed by the idea that there are all these millions of different molecular varieties out there in the world and how can we possibly classify them and how do we make sense of all that, literally. It turns out when you do a chemical analysis of common natural smells like fruits, vegetables, and other botanical materials, say a tomato. tomato has over 400 volatile molecules in it. So it seems like this overwhelming mass of stuff. And yet when you start winnowing it down, it turns out that only 14 or 16 of them are actually above threshold for the human nose. In other words, we're only detecting 16 of them. And so it's possible to create a very realistic tomato smell with maybe 10, 12 ingredients. Mm. So really, the molecular diversity is sort of an illusion. It really boils down to just a few key odor items. The example I use is of John Muir. He's the poster guy of the Sierra Club. Back in the 1870s, he was up in the upper reaches of the Feather River in California and had this olfactory epiphany, which I describe. I won't read, I won't read it out loud. But he was standing there and he started smelling the balsam firs and the pines and the uh, coyote mint in the foothills there. And he was also smelling something he called Chemabatia which is a sort of odd plant. It's like a knee-high member of the rose family that grows as a ground cover under the pines, up in the foothills and up to the uh, tree line. And it's got the oddest smell. It smells like cooked artichoke. But every summer in California, if you go up into the foothills, you get this, this funky smell is kind of rolling in, and especially late in the afternoon, it's, the smell sort of rises off the ground. A couple of years ago on a camping trip with my family, we cut a few pieces of this, and I sent it to a chemist friend of mine in Switzerland who analyze it. He's one of the best. He's a perfume chemist. He can take any fragrance in real life and analyze it down to the molecule and then recreate it. My daughters who were here helped me with this scam. We basically cut some fresh, uh, it's called Kit Kit Dizzy by the Miwok Indians of California, but it's also known as Sierra Mountain Misery by the pioneers who settled there because it, it's an oily, sticky stuff. It'll get on your pants and your pants smell pretty stale and musty. We managed to scam the Kinko's coffee shop in Berkeley into shipping it to Switzerland in violation of every one of their rules <laughs> and probably USDA as well. So Roman Kaiser, my buddy there, took it and analyzed it, and uh, that entire cooked artichoke smell comes down to one molecule, uh, hexanone. So it, even though it's a kind of stew of chemicals inside it, that one, that one particular one gives you that, enables you to recreate almost the entire smell. Say the area around Lake Tahoe in late July. So such things as a super smellers. Well, you find super smellers all the time in fiction. It's a popular theme. Yeah, I mean Salman Rushdie had super smellers there's that weird german book called perfume the story of a murderer but patrick suskin where this guy is kind of human freak who has no body scent of his own is able to smell everything in the world in great detail and of course there's always um, daredevil the marvel comic hero who's blinded and then in compensation got this great sense of smell in real life it just doesn't happen it's a little tough to say because no test for smell rates you better than normal the best you can do on a smell test out there is to be normal Smell tests are designed to find people who can't smell for one reason or another. And there's no way to, there's no test that tells you you're a smell genius. So it's, it's tough, but I don't think it's the nose as such anyway. I think it's the brain that really makes a difference. We're all familiar with the kind of cheech and chong scenario of a couple of hippies being pulled over by a cop at a red light and they roll down their window and outpours ganja smoke. And that's a pretty easy call for any, any policeman to make because it smells like burning marijuana. And, in fact, most state Supreme Courts now have something called the In Plain Smell Doctrine, which, in other words, you don't need... it can be a warrantless search. You don't need a warrant to know that when the clouds of (laughs) pot smoke come out of the car, pot is burning there, and you can assume safely that that's a criminal violation. More controversial, though, is the idea that the average police officer can smell fresh marijuana. In other words, you know, the plant, just fresh or dried marijuana in a block, say, pressed together a kilo of Mexican weed that's been wrapped in plastic and, and again in plastic and stored in the back of a car. Or, alternatively, that there's a grow house. This is the phenomenon where people rent a house, close all the windows, tap the electricity from the neighbors, and then just start raising hydroponic marijuana in every room in the house. It's often claimed in police busts of such places that the officer from a couple of hundred yards down wind could smell the fresh marijuana inside the house, and that qualified under the in plain smell doctrine for a warrantless search of the house and therefore an arrest and so forth. A couple of uh, colleagues of mine undertook to imitate these cases in precise detail. They took the actual car from the New Jersey state police impound, put the brick of fresh marijuana in the back, drove it around for 20 minutes as it happened in the actual bust, and then had regular people come up and sniff and say if they could smell marijuana. Nobody could. Similarly with the Grove House, under those conditions it was exhaust from a chimney fan, so it's, it's diesel exhaust mixed with smell of fresh marijuana, which in an immature plant smells about like a tomato plant, doesn't have much of essential oils, let's say, of of the ripe bud, regular people just can't detect that. And yet, under the doctor of in-plain smell, the warrantless search is perfectly fine under those circumstances. So there's some interesting cases. At the least, it speaks for either more uh, sensory training among police officers as they can claim to be experts in that case and possibly for more aggressive defense by people who are busted that way. You can definitely be trained to smell. Perfumers learn their trade in the same way that you can learn to be a wine connoisseur. You need practice. You need exposure to all the different types, hopefully under conditions where somebody's telling you, here's an oaky sort of Cabernet, or here's a Cabernet wine, here's a Sauvignon Blanc, and here's a Gewurztraminer, and you learn to smell them and taste them for yourself and kind of create your own internal categorization, so that your own mental notes, so that when you see it again, smell it again, you can recognize it. That's how perfumers learn, how wine tasters learn. You can definitely train your nose. The nose adapts. So in other words, when you've got a background odor, the nose and the brain together tune it out and prepare you to smell new things in a way. So they're actually able to make very finely nuanced smell discriminations against these horrific backgrounds of all kinds of stuff. Although it's gotta be other perfume things. I remember one time they had a new chef at the cafeteria in the perfume company, and she made the mistake of sauteing some garlic for lunch. And there was a near riot. The perfumers were running down the hallways to tell her to stop. They were ready to fire her on the spot because garlic is not part of the perfumer's palate. Retronasal olfaction is a technical term for smelling food and beverages in your mouth. So the smells, instead of coming from the outside world through your nostrils up to the sensitive portion of the nose, the smells come through the back of your throat, up through the nasopharynx to the sensory portion which you think wouldn't make a big difference. I mean, it gets to the same destination ultimately, but psychologically it does make a difference. There's a whole set of different perceptual rules that seem to hold for when you're smelling things in the mouth than outside. And so it's probably a separate system, if you will, in the brain that analyzes those odors. Aromas released from food in the mouth reach the nasal passages via the back of the throat and are exhaled through the nostrils. The act of swallowing drives aromas along this reverse path. In effect, we smell our food from the inside out. Today this is known as retronasal olfaction, that's the scientific jargon for it, but I prefer Henry Fink's name for it, a second way of smelling. A phrase that sets it apart from the usual nostrils-first mode. Retronasal olfaction has become a hot topic among sensory scientists, and recent findings confirm Fink's intuition. A second way of smelling operates by its own set of sensory rules. So, for example, if we take a smell that has a kind of unfamiliar smell to most people, and we have people smell it while they're sipping something sweet, that smell will take on sweet characteristics, will later come to describe it as sweet. If we smell it while we're sipping vinegar or a a sour solution, we'll come to describe it as sour or bitter. So the smell quality transfers from the tongue to the nose. And it also works in reverse. So if we're smelling soy sauce and tasting a salty solution, we think the soy sauce smells smells stronger. So you get this back and forth between the senses. It's very cool. There's a neurobiologist at Yale University named Gordon Shepard, and he's been very big on this idea that humans, uh, while their nose might not be any better than any other mammal, we seem to be specialized for smelling things in the mouth, that this retronasal olfaction is sort of our signature in evolution. That's why you know, we have this use of spices which is a, and cooking, which is a human universal. And it's not just a, something we choose to do. It's almost a biological necessity to cook to get enough calories to have the time to do the other social things like tool making and so forth. So he thinks it's a a uniquely human feature and I I, I tend to agree with him on that. I think we're not so good at smelling things at a distance. So as hunters, we're not good at smelling a gazelle out in the savannah. But once we catch the gazelle, bring it back to camp, we can sure season the hell out of it. I'm from the perfume business where everything is beautiful, fresh, and we're trying to induce people to smell. But there's always that dark side of of fragrance. And so I just wanted to close by reading briefly from a section they call Hey Beavis, pull my finger. (laughs) One might expect the chemistry of certain bathroom malodors to be well understood. What other stinks are experienced on so personal a basis? For years medical students were taught that the main ingredients of fecal odor were scatol and indol, nasty smelling molecules created by the breakdown of meat protein during digestion. This claim persisted in textbooks despite having never been confirmed by direct chemical analysis. Uh, the shit finally hit the gas chromatograph in 1984, <laughs> when researchers in Salt Lake City ran some poop through a gas chromatograph and sniffed the results. Skatol and Indol, although present in the sample, contributed relatively little to the typical odor. The key actors turned out to be sulfur-containing compounds, such as mercaptan, dimethyl disulfide, and so forth. Despite this dramatic reversal of conventional medical wisdom, the gastroenterological community remained unmoved. Finally, in 1998, investigators at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, took the next step and performed an exacting chemical and olfactory analysis of farts. Their experimental methods were straightforward, and I quote from the, the scientific paper. To ensure flattest output, the diet of the subjects was usually supplemented with 200 grams of pinto beans on the night before and on the morning of the study, end quote. Gas capture was simplicity itself though the details are squirm-inducing. Again, I quote, Flatus was collected via a rectal tube connected to a gas-impermeable bag, end quote. When the bags of as gas were analyzed, the main contributors were once again sulfur-containing molecules, hydrogen sulfide, mercaptan, and dimethyl disulfide. By comparing bean-powered samples from men and women, the intrepid Minnesotans were able to settle a long-running dispute between the sexes. The data proved, as men have claimed for centuries, that the farts of women are stinkier, on a volume-for-volume basis than those of men. Since men produce a greater volume than women, however, the overall gag factor remains about equal. As part of their research, the team tested a device called the Toot Trapper, a fabric-covered foam cushion coated with activated charcoal. The cushion is worn inside one's pants, and according to the manufacturer, absorbs the offensive odor of intestinal gas. The Minneapolis team tailored a pair of fart-proof pants from Mylar sheets and duct tape... (laughs) The volunteers wore the pants along with the tooth trapper. The captured gas was indeed less smelly. Uh, I include here parenthetically that tooth trapper strikes me as a lame brand name for this useful product. If I were the marketing consultant, I'd go with something more robust like Blastmaster 3000. It's such a weird topic. It's just you're, you're dealing with something that's invisible, uh, that doesn't last very long, that's hard to capture, difficult to work with, and, uh, and yet it's always there and having some kind of effect. And As a scientist, I get excited because there's so much basic work still to be done. I think it's a great field for somebody to go into, even today.
0: Thanks for listening. Avery Gilbert's new book, What the Nose Knows, is available at Barnes & Noble stores and also at bn.com. If you're interested in the senses, also check out The Taste of Sweet by Joanne Chen. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. We'd love your feedback. Send us an email at scienceinthecity at org, or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Want to know more about Science in the City in New York? Visit scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.